Hello, everybody, and welcome to the TechTrends podcast, where we discuss the latest manufacturing technology research and news. I'm Benjamin Moses, the Director of Manufacturing Technology, and I'm here with... Stephen Lamarca, AMT's Technology Analyst. Steve, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. Yeah? It's, it's... Actually, I don't know if it's that beautiful outside. <laughs> it was looking really dark, but there's a lot of light coming in the apartment right now, so I feel like it's a beautiful day. Summer... It's at least a beautiful day in here. Summer is here, even though it's spring. Yes. It's warm. It's pleasant. Oh, man. Speaking of the summer being here, the other day um, we had uh, the door to the Juliet balcony open and they were making a lot of racket because uh, I think there was a lawnmower outside. And it was just you knew the summer was here because you could smell the carbureted gasoline Mm. and you could smell the fresh cut grass. And it was like, yes, yes, it is (laughs) definitely summer now. Speaking of uh, uh, smelling gas, you know, we've been talking a lot about supercars in the past couple episodes. Probably uh, a little too much, just saying. Yeah, but, you could know, be. <laughs> I'm not going to complain. <laughs> yeah, particularly applications of carbon fiber and additively grown uh, structural components. Mm-hmm. Um, in the article that we're going to put in the show notes uh, from Motor Authority, they discuss how difficult it actually is to get a supercar legal. Uh, so it's kind of interesting that oh, you know supercars are super expensive, but also they're low volume production. Uh, yes. And the costs associated with uh, getting past the regulatory. Uh, constraints for a low volume uh, 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 car is, is fairly difficult. And the article talks about, you know, you can break down the regulatory uh, into three sections. Uh, you have active safety, passive safety, and emissions. So yeah. active, uh, passive safety, like headlights, um, uh, structure, uh, carpal zones, active safety would be like uh, seat belts, airbags, that type of stuff. Right. Uh, and in the article, they mentioned, uh, they're interviewing Condesec, which is probably your top tier um uh small small supercar manufacturer yeah, hands down and they mentioned that 60 percent of the development budget goes towards compl- uh, regulatory compliance and that's a huge amount i mean i believe it yeah 60 that's what in the article that's what think, they mentioned yeah think about it first off they can only make so many of those cars like the Correct. ccx the ccx uh which was like their first big car or the ccr i forget it doesn't matter they only made like five of them the first year <laughs> that thing was available. Sure. And the people who had pre-ordered them were probably waiting four or five years before they could get them. Right. Um, yep. So they only made like five of them a year. Then on top of that, you know, this is a, like it, it's a legal car to drive in the U.S. You don't need some like fancy. Oh, well, you know, I had it imported doing this. No, like like in theory, you could go to a dealership and buy one. Is that possible? Absolutely not. On top of that, you know, these are financially nearly untouchable cars. Um, but the whole crazy thing is they make like five of them the sure. first year of like that CCX or CCR. Right. Um, and th- that, that means let's just think about that real quick. Five cars available in the United States. Four of them, four cars had to be crashed <laughs> to test the passive safety standards. Yeah, right. That's, <laughs> that's, that's an incredible amount. Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, yeah to talk about the. That's also why you know a lot of cars don't leave the U.S. market. So if I have a car and they mention the Ford Raptor, may not be sold yeah. in the European market, even though everybody wants it. Apparently, everyone yeah. and their mother wants a Ford Raptor. Well, you know what they they can they can wait and they can cry <laughs> about it because Europe gets all of the cool cars. That's true. Like the, the the turbo four wheel drive Toyotas that were like made for rally racing yeah. that will never come to the U.S. I'm still waiting. Fortunately, we did get that uh, Ford Focus RS finally, yeah. and we finally got the uh, the Honda Civic Type R. Yeah, and hopefully they're you know 
uh, Honda and well, not Ford because now Ford discontinued all their cars. But hopefully, <laughs> Honda's making enough money off of that to justify keep to to keep bringing it to the U.S. See, because gonna... uh, originally that was a Japan only car. I'm gonna bring back the full size sedan, a uh, full size wagon. Oh man, I miss wagons. <laughs> Only Subaru makes them now. Volvo doesn't even make wagons anymore. No. I mean, they do, but yeah, not really. Wagons are so cool. Mercedes actually makes a pretty wagon. It, it's called a crossover yeah. now. They call it a crossover because people don't want to think about station wagons. They think it's Panacea or something like that. Yeah. Before we get into uh, something that we publish, I just want to make one one thing that's mentioned about grinding my gears. If we could have yeah. all the CEOs and companies stop telling me how how uh <laughs> how much they care about me during this uh pandemic everyone don't send me an email don't stop sending me emails stop wasting your money on commercials uh putting hard emojis on your commercials use that money for your employees it's just, it's yeah. i'm overwhelmed steve and it's like it's like the, the first the first thing that virtually everybody got screwed on from the a lot of these major companies the first companies that like sent us these oh this is what the ceo thinks right or like the airline <laughs> i got i got i got a i got these long-winded emails with like maybe even voice recordings and, and like youtube videos from like american airlines yep. and united and it's like dude you're the last person i want to hear from <laughs> right now like i'm not gonna travel this year because of you don't i i don't feel bad for you i hope you lose everything it's not I, true. I don't, no, you know, no. because I want those companies to you know, keep buying planes so the manufacturers <laughs> can keep building planes and and the manufacturers of the machines that make those planes stay in business. But I just wish they no, would I, fix I, their uh, how they purchase tickets, uh, their whole marketplace. So like getting refunds because of the pandemic was one, a nightmare. And two, now I got to keep track of a code that I want to use for future reference. Um, yeah. All right, let's get into Ugh. it. So uh, before we get into a test bed, which we're still shut down for because we haven't been back in yeah. office yet. Uh, AMT and Virginia Tech were working together to accelerate uh, companies getting into digital manufacturing or starting the digital manufacturing journey. Uh, we saw a lot of value in helping these uh, small, medium-sized companies accelerate, just jump right into getting data off their machines. So we worked with uh, Virginia Tech down in Blacksburg, Virginia. Uh, they have a learning factory that's set up for their undergrad students. So keep in mind that, you know, previously with uh, when we would work with uh, universities and getting data off machines, a bunch of years ago, it was a bunch of PhD students. Uh, and then we, when we hired Sharb a couple of years ago, you know, he finished <laughs> up his master's. Yeah. Now we're working with the undergrad students to get um, data pulled off a Haas three axis mill. Uh, and we published a, a white paper that captures best practices and lessons learned uh, from that application. And we aggregated all the research that's kind of required to get your adapter and agent running right off the bat for uh, right. for this specific example and put it all in one place. Uh, Sharb was instrumental in kind of providing um, technical oversight for those uh, four students that helped put that together. But uh, I, they we did a quick estimate and it looks like we can save, you know, about 40 hours of research time for a company that wants to, you know, uh, install an adapter and agent off on their uh, system to get data off their machine. So I was really excited to work with Virginia Tech and we published it on... Um, empty news we'll post a link in the show notes that's awesome i'm really pumped about that yeah it was especially really, since i was a part of it yeah and it was really great to work with the kids i uh, not kids students they're adults I mean, <laughs> we, we did have to uh, we'd have to make sure that they're old enough to drink when we went to visit them we had to, <laughs> we went to blacksburg like wait a sec how old is everybody here it was really fun working with the students and uh the staff at virginia tech was great 
Um, awesome. So hopefully we can get to another project. We we see line of sight of growing with their learning factory. They're in their right. uh, early stages now, uh, but as they grow, we see a lot of opportunity of getting more uh, digital manufacturing tools and best practices out of the learning lab. Back well, I hope industry. we I hope we get to you know fire up the test bed again soon for yeah. more projects like the Virginia Tech Learning Factory. That's great. That was a great uh, a great program for us. Yeah, absolutely. See, so you you wanted to mention that uh, you had something about uh, UL. UL. Yes. Since I don't have anything to report on the test bed, and and you thankfully did some test bed reporting for me. Um, you know, I'm I'm a technology analyst for AMT. And the technology analyst for AMT, as you know, since you're my boss. Um, and one of my jobs, one of my roles at AMT is, you know, I, people send me within the industry, not necessarily members, anybody within the industry, you know, will send me an email with some sort of question. Um, they usually pertain to standards or, or you know, machine tools, like specifics, um, not necessarily sales, because that's the other department that does uh, analytics. But um, I got an interesting one today, actually, and I wanted to share it, and I figured it would be great, because this is part of my job, and I found it fascinating, because I hadn't gotten one like this. And to be fair, all inquiries are different and unique in their own special way. But this one I found really cool because it had nothing like this had been asked before. Sure. And, you know, I, I get, I field a lot of questions about standards, whether it's MT Connect, and that's more so Russ and Sharab that field those questions. But when it comes to ANSI standards and ISO standards and B11 standards, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll try to field those. But I got one that was really interesting today. And the question was, how important is it for U.S. companies when buying machinery that the machinery provider has a UL certification. Oh, that's and you, you look around your house and you'll see appliances with UL stamped or embossed on it somewhere. Right. You know, whether it's your entertainment centers, speakers, the TV, microwave, the refrigerator. I'm just looking around at this point. <laughs> um, it's huge. The consumer. Product. You'll see, you'll see UL on stuff. Right. And, I don't know what it is, you know, but sure enough, I'm going to take a deep dive and try to figure it out for this person. And instead of asking, you know, Dr. Google or, you know, <laughs> using the Internet machine, um, I decided to uh, talk to one of the other warm bodies at AMT first. So I, you know, I figured a great person to call uh, to answer this question would be Pat McGibbon, sure. uh, our chief knowledge officer. Or as I like to call them, our chief knockout, you know, for CKO. But, you know, <laughs> anyway, but I knew that this this question can potentially be answered in five minutes. And Pat would probably take 45 minutes. So <laughs> right. I went instead, I went to another AMD old guy and I asked Steve Lesnowich. Ah, and perfect. Steve said, Steve, so Steve's answer was, and I, uh, so how important are UL standards? Um, or here's a UL certification when buying and selling machines in the US. And I found this a fascinating question, of course. And um, Steve helped me with the answer. And I said, and the answer was, in most states, it's extremely important that the machine has is to a UL certification code is to code. Um, if it isn't, the distributor can be fined. 
Hmm. Um, the UL certification is usually the uh, the first thing inspectors look for. Most distrib- distributors in the U.S. won't even touch a machine that doesn't have a UL certification on it. It's looking like, <laughs> and I just said, it's it's better to have it than not. Right. Um, and then I got another follow-up from him. Uh, this gentleman asked me, um, so certifications such as CSA and ANSI are less considered by buyers and distributors, correct? UL is the gold standard. And doing more dive to, to continue answering this guy's question, I found out that actually UL is sort of like the bare minimum. Ah, oh, interesting. The very least a machine being sold to be used in the U.S. Yep. should have a UL standard. And in fact, um, uh, machine tool builders and distributors in the U.S. will even go to to the can- Canadian standards, the yeah. uh, CSA, which is um, the Canadian Standards Association, and they will go, they'll, they'll use their standards to make sure it meets not only UL, because UL almost falls within CSA and then some. Okay. Um, CSA is like more of, it, uh, it, it's more thorough and covers their bums a little bit more. So <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. And, and, and so to answer this guy's question, yeah, it better have a UL certification on it. And, yeah. and um, I also found out, so if a uh, inspector finds a machine that does not comply with UL certifications, then that machine can be, or th- like the inspector can order that that facility shuts that machine down. The wow. facility entirely doesn't have to shut down, but sure. that machine can't be used. That's interesting. Um, and and I, don't, I don't know what totally goes into that, but they basically declare, yeah, you can't, you guys can't use this machine wow. at all. And it's obviously very bad for the end user of that particular machine and will probably get, make them very angry. They'll probably be fine and it will probably blow up in the distributor's face. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Steve Lesnar, which also clarified that uh, savvy and experienced machine buyers will always look for the UL certification. It's almost always there. And it's almost always a standard thing that comes on machines being sold in the US. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's some secondhand machine tool sellers that, you know, will try to uh, get around there and you know, it takes a good buyer to to realize that that's the bare minimum that they need is yeah. that UL yeah. certification. So this was something really fascinating that I got to learn today. Right. And, you know, it's part of my job. So even though I don't have the test bed to play with, this was, a, I think, a fascinating topic that uh, that was for, I was fortunate to uh, come up with. Yeah, it's a good question because it's something that you don't necessarily think about. So if you're on the market looking for a, a new machine or a used machine, um, going through and verifying that they meet regulatory compliances is right. Not again, necessarily like the, f- a, the thing you think about right away. Cause you're assuming that they, Hey, they can sell it. So it must be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, cause immediately, you know, you think, at least I think, you know, ANSI standards, ISO standards, B11 sometimes. Right. Um, and while, you know, UL is on the back of most consumer products, electronics, you know, I've never thought about it for this industry. And and have, have you, were, when working for Eaton, did you ever come across uh, looking for these standards on machines and stuff? Not really. We bought a lot of um, commodity-style equipment. Um, most of it's used or secondhand. Uh, so we rarely bought specialized equipment. And we never really, when I bought equipment, I never really looked for it. So 
when we'd buy the second equipment, we usually do an on-site verification that the machine's running. We do a test cut. Um, uh, I didn't really get into opening the cabinets and verifying the uh, comp- stickers were uh, in place. Uh, we always had a machine rigger on hand to help mm-hmm. disassemble the uh, machine. Uh, and then they'll do the electrical disconnects also. Uh, but no, we never really checked um, our safety. We always had EHNS department environment health and safety officer who would okay. verify that once the machine was there, that it met the uh, OSHA requirements or safety requirements for that specific department. So I'm assuming that was part of his role, but as part of the initial buying uh, process, I don't think I ever uh, reviewed that. Um, part of it, I probably didn't know right. about it then also. Do you um, think it's also because Eaton is such like, you know, a, a top dollar company they're such a huge company that they're probably not looking for you know uh the cheapest possible deal and something that would potentially try to get around the ul standards well that's interesting that you mentioned that so the way the corporation was structured Mm -hmm. uh the individual machine buying uh decision maker was not part of corporate so we had our site responsibility and in the end that was the individual manufacturing engineer that raised the flag that said, hey, we need to buy a piece of machinery. Okay. And would say, okay, what do you want to buy? So the ME would have to go out and find a machine and do most of the sourcing and logistics and uh, according with the rigors, have it installed, the layout and all that stuff. So it was very little, corporate had very little bit involvement. And to be honest, I wouldn't say that they were looking for top dollar. If anything, they're looking for best return on investment. So that's why- Mill spec, if you would. <laughs> that's why most of our equipment was used. So we would buy it at, you know, 20% of original- uh, price when oh, it was good okay. 10, 15 years ago, partly because we're machining super alloys. So, right. I mean, we were by like heavy, we didn't need fast machines. We didn't need, we weren't looking at any data coming off the machines. We're looking for something that was just uh, fairly high horsepower, low RPMs, excuse me, high, high torque, low RPMs. Um, gotcha. that can cut through the super alloys. Now we did look, we, for some reason, our strategy was to buy twin spindles for a bunch of years. So we mm-hmm. had a lot of twin spindles, vertical uh, twin right. spindle legs. And those are big machines. Those are I bet. not pleasant machines to work with all the time. <laughs> uh, for some reason, we just thought that was our strategy, and we kept buying that. And that worked out for a while for, uh, for us until we started uh, testing out some newer equipment. Okay. Um, so, yeah, we talked about that. And I have one article from Modern Machine Shop I want to get into, and actually gets awesome. into uh, some of the digital manufacturing stuff we talked about, Virginia Tech. Uh, so Pete Zielinski published an article titled, um, After Machine Monitoring, Is Machine Learning the Next Step? Getting Ready for AI Manufacturing. Uh, so overall, I th- you know, the title isn't too clickbaity, but the article is really good. So the foundation of the article is really solid. Uh, for companies that are collecting machine and part data, what do you do from now? So I'm, I already have a dashboard of all my equipment that's running. I've got some uh, OEE. I've got uptime. I've got maintenance. I've got stuff I'm collecting on the machines. What's the next thing I'm going to do? Um, the article gets into uh, not getting too far ahead of ourselves. Uh, and the, I think what he, he outlines a couple of things that are some pretty good takeaways at the end. But uh, one thing that I think the article does a good job is preparing ourselves for the future, saying, okay, in the future, we probably will do some type of machine learning, being able to get a mathematician or someone that we would call a data scientist or someone with some high-end statistical processing capability and some someone with some lean and 5S skills 
of one they're going to want to crunch tons and tons of data mm-hmm. but as our own amt's own data scientists taught us a huge portion of the workload is just scrubbing the data yeah so one of the big takeaways in the article is, hey, let's start preparing our data for when we've got to get it ready for running algorithms, running uh, predictive analytics, running all these complex uh, uh, equations. Let's prepare our data so we don't have to do tons and tons of scrubbing. Uh, so I thought, was, one, that was a really good uh, observation and uh, takeaway from the article. He also uh, points out um, new computational tools are just tools. Um <laughs> And they're in the wording and the what we describe them are they're just analogies. So I think it's a good takeaway that artificial intelligence, there's no real intelligence behind it. It's what we've trained it to do and it makes a decision on our behalf. We tend right. to call it artificial intelligence because that's a name they've carried over for a bunch of years. Machine right. learning is a machine that's learning how to do something because you've taught it exactly what to do. Um, the, another bullet that he mentions was uh, we can't always rationalize why a correlation found in data might make sense. Um, this does not make it true. So what he's saying is, yeah, the algorithm may tell us that these things correlate, but we need to figure out why, if that's accurate. Yes. Um, Will Sobel told us that, you know, if you do a correlation of um, selling ice cream in hot days, the software will tell, or the algorithms may tell you, if I sell more ice cream, it's going to be a hot day. Right, because it's two way. It doesn't. There's no causality built into the software just yet, and that's a very interesting application. That yes, there's a correlation between the two. If it's hot, yeah, you probably will sell more ice cream. But the inverse is not true, and <laughs> that's what a lot of the some of the uh, errors in the software may tell us. That you know, just because it, they we need to validate the correlation that the algorithm is telling us. Right. Um, uh, the second last bullet that I uh, pulled away was big data can be bad which is absolutely true. We don't want too yes. much data. Uh, we there sc- is so much uh, such thing as yes. too much data. Exactly. Especially when you start looking at connecting it to other warehouses, right? So if I've got my machine data, now I've got my part data set, now I connect it to my ERP system, it's data on top of data. I don't know what to do this yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, academics tells us, teaches us that, you know, having gone to high school and potentially college, you know, teaches you in in the sciences that, you know, th- there is such thing as too, uh, too little data. Like too little data is a problem. If you only yeah. have like, you know, so many, like two data points, you can't correlate <laughs> and you can't, you can't make any sort of assumption or calculation from two data points. No, nothing makes you can't, sense. You can't, you can't, you could get a trend line technically from two data points, but it's, it could potentially be like really inaccurate. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what we're learning in, you know, the job in, in, in manufacturing is there's definitely, and not just manufacturing, in, in data science in general, there's definitely such thing as too much data. And you really have to target, like, before you start collecting the data and is what data do you want? Right. And before you even know that, what are you trying to solve? Exactly. Yep. What is, what is your goal? And that's the key drivers, you know, understanding your problem statement that trickles down to what data you need to collect, what tools you need. Mm-hmm. It's such an important question that we get miss a lot. And it's a hard question to ask. Uh, right. Some of it does require some exploratory research and within your own systems. Uh, and but, if you've got a bad algorithm or if you're improperly using, not necessarily bad algorithm, but if you're improperly using an algorithm, you, you've got false 
uh, an, a false output, not necessarily yeah. false data, yeah. but your results are are wrong. Yep. Like, I mean, you know, I've, I've told you, and I'm sorry, we're going to talk about cars again. <laughs> I, I, I've been using an OBD2 scanner lately to sure. do a lot of data logs with my car and fiddling with that. And one of the factory settings on the scanner, one of the factory uh, um calculations it makes for you is boost sure you know it monitors your um throttle position and your mass airflow sensor um and a handful of other sensors and sure enough on my phone or my computer whichever device i'm using connected to my car um it it tells me how much boost the turbocharger is uh generating for the car sure my car doesn't have a turbo. <laughs> That's what I was going to get. It's normally aspirated a little, uh, a little guy. Yeah, yeah. There's no turbocharger. It's just, thing. it's, you have to be careful. You yeah. really, there's too much data is probably the greatest threat right now. Yeah. To and big data. That was a big takeaway. I mean, the article describes a lot of different scenarios and I, I definitely recommend a read, but in the end, understand the tool before you buy the hype. That's the key thing is that, Yes, there's advanced mathematical tools that help solve business problems, but don't just start off the bat saying, I want to do AI. That doesn't yeah. mean anything. Right. Let's understand it a little bit more before we jump right into it. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, Steve, uh, you want to kick us off? Uh, let me tell you, let me tell you what I got here. So yeah. I don't have any art. I don't have an article, but I've got something fun. Okay. And, you know, the whole point of tech trends is we talk about the trending technologies and lately, we've been talking about a lot of transformative technologies. Like we just got, got done talking about big data, uh, AI, and ML right. for crying out loud. Um, I, you know, recently I wanted to wind it back, and I love. I, I've got a huge passion for you know the more traditional technologies. I look at a lot of my hobbies, and everything comes back to manufacturing, and most of the time it's of relating to a more traditional manufacturing technology, one that's here to stay, not something that you're going to see in the uh, emerging technology center at IMTS. Sure. It's, it's, you know, it's something that's been around and it's, <laughs> it's a staple of our industry, but anyway, you know, our president uh, of AMT, Doug um, has his uh, afternoon minute with Doug about, you know, where, where anybody can hop on the uh, zoom call and ask Doug a question. Right. And, um, you know, Doug's just itching to talk to us and answer any questions we may have for him because, you know, it's it's his job to be the face of AMT and talk for AMT, and the man needs to talk. <laughs> so I, uh, I uh, actually had, a I feel like, a really interesting question for him. And, you know, to take the pressure off of transformative technologies and you know, the latest and greatest stuff that we're constantly focused on, on a day-to-day -day basis working here. I wanted to ask Doug uh, this question. What are your favorite traditional, more traditional technologies, some more older technologies? And what are some of your favorite machines that, you know, are really old and have been around forever? And of course, Doug and I connected right away on the Bridgeport and email. Sure. You know, I, I sound like a broken record talking about a Bridgeport email because I love going to some of the most advanced manufacturing facilities in the U.S., uh, whether it's, you know, Autodesk in San Francisco um, on Pier 9. You know, they've got additive manufacturing machines. They've got 3D printers everywhere. 
um, collaborative robots everywhere, but in a in the a deep dark corner <laughs> of their facility, you will find a Bridgeport email. Always, you know, they're they're unbreakable. They're bulletproof, and they will be anywhere. And there's usually a uh, half an inch of dust. Yeah. Uh, oh and, yeah. And just tools laying all around it, just <laughs> because whoever's using it does not want to clean it up. <laughs> and you know, this is a metalworking machine. Yeah. But you know, it's it's also good for wood, so you'll find like you know a half an inch of uh, sawdust on it too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But uh, you know, there, there was another facility. I always forget the name of that company, but they're a really advanced manufacturing uh, facility that has like five plants on one plot of land, um, and they were doing some some uh, stuff for the US military but uh, you know had, had DMG Moris everywhere sure. and Mazax and Okuma machines so some like you know half a million up to multi-million dollar machine tools and sure enough we get to one part of the facility <laughs> there's a there's a wall of Bridgeport emails yeah. and so that was really cool that you know Doug and I uh, were were on the same wavelength with that see real quick before you move on one yeah. thing that'll always scare you when you're machining on a bridgeport it's trying to yeah. climb mill on a bridgeport climb mill okay i know what that is okay oh man i wouldn't <laughs> want to do that <laughs> i did it the first time and uh boy i my my butt puckered up real quick <laughs> it did not go well i didn't crash oh the machine God. it just it jumped so bad because the bridgeport that we had back then was the ways because that doesn't rigorous. have an enclosure i mean it's not just an enclosure too it's the uh the the attachment from the bed to the screw uh, yeah. handrail it's not tight at all it was fairly loose there's a fair amount of backlash on the machine okay so once it bit it just pulled the table you know twenty thousand of an inch into the cut right away and luckily i was cutting like some soft aluminum or something like that but that was my first experience steve <laughs> did you get like a lot of feedback in the handles and stuff like that oh yeah i mean the whole thing shook oh, oh man I'm, yep I'm okay probably, I, I probably if i use that end mill again it probably would have broken because i'd probably impact it right away but uh, that, was Man. A, that was a fun experience. And now that we have like collaborative robots everywhere, I bet, you know, it would be really sad and a shame to see stuff like that be like, okay, this does not comply with safety standards anymore. Sure. You can't use these anymore. <laughs> that would be, that's going to be a really sad day. I hope it doesn't come, but yeah. it, I would, it would totally make sense if it did. Now, to be fair, um, there's probably some really good machinists out there that'll do a skim cut climb milling, but in general, I would not recommend that. <laughs> no man that's scary. that's scary but but some of the other uh so so doug came up with two other technologies and pieces of equipment that i hadn't heard about yep. and russ uh mentioned one you know a couple of years ago uh talking with him he was like you should look up screw machines man yep. screw machines are like bulletproof machines you know they, they don't break they rarely ever fail right and that was one that i looked up another favorite of mine um uh, leblon lathes you know, especially since those made it out of World War II and yep. they're still running um, and, and there's a surplus of them. People can't get rid of them. They're really easy you know? to use, too. Everything's well um, well designed, very uh, straightforward. All the handles and controls are in really good locations for LeBlanc's. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All I know is you can get one for like under a thousand dollars. The shipping's <laughs> gonna be a couple probably a couple thousand dollars, but but the machine tool itself costs nothing. Yeah. Um but does uh, one tool that Doug mentioned um, is called a shaper. Yep. And you know, I, I fortunately I was like, dude, what the hell is a shaper? This is there's no way I can just Google shaper and it's gonna <laughs> pop up. Sure enough, Wikipedia had my back. <laughs> nice. And 
yeah, there's this old looking machine here. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've been to a handful of uh, watchmaking and clock making facilities to have seen machines like this, like, you know, big, heavy brass machines that are clearly from a different time uh, <laughs> point of, of style sure. in over the, the centuries. And uh, it's, it's just a wild looking machine. Um, but uh, yeah, they're not used to often. I mean, you don't see them in everyday factor i see them in machines building other machines of you know the, the oh yeah huge industrial side so if you have to make a giant table a metal table that's going to seat a giant piece of uh, industrial equipment it's uh you know this giant sh- shaper scraping away the surface of it so it's flat and parallel yeah you and i have a a, a favorite um instagram page that we follow of ours yeah. i think it's called like daikara yep. and, and yep. i think they're from japan and it's it's such a treat when you see that one of these videos comes across your feed on Instagram because you just see this do this this like single edge cutting tool that goes in a straight line across a massive piece of metal mm-hmm. and it comes all the way back and the guy like with his gloves on and some old little oil dripper <laughs> uh, puts down you know a few drops of oil on the uh, workpiece and then this thing just. You just the sound of it is like an ASMR experience because you just hear it <laughs> scrape along the material and yep. it and it the chip coming uh, forming from the the cut it starts to look like a slinky and <laughs> the heat generated just the way it just oil. like yeah. at once it meet, meet, reaches the end of the workpiece the way it just like clicks and then you hear that big long chip drop to the floor <laughs> and kind of cling it's just it's such an oral experience it is. the aura to it is is so cool but that was that was one machine that i had to look up that doug mentioned in the last one less so of a machine or a technology but more of like a science and an art Mm -hmm. doug mentioned um hand scraping ways way scraping so this was cool because i mentioned passions earlier and you know uh you and i relate on because we're both uh we both like to go shooting and collect firearms uh, my first rifle was a Remington 700. My first firearm was sure. a Remington 700, a bolt a, action rifle. Should be everyone's first rifle, first firearm. Yes, I agree. <laughs> don't make the same mistake I did, and don't make your first firearm a 30 6 because that is way too big of a cartridge <laughs> that's, that's for a, a beginner. <laughs> I should have done something like a 223 or some, yeah. something shrimpy, you know, yeah. just to. The 308 what? still has a little, little bit of a kick on the on an M7 Remington 700 too. Yeah, that was the thing though. Like I wanted a long action rifle, yeah, yeah, and that's that true. was a dumb want at the time. <laughs> but but you know, going over the years, you know, as I started uh, using putting a lot, thousands and thousands of actually hundreds and hundreds of rounds <laughs> through it, um, and I still on the original barrel. I wanted to, uh, you know, I was getting better at shooting. So I wanted to, I wanted the rifle to keep up with me, which it had no problem doing. I'm, right. I'm sure even out of the box, that rifle is still more accurate than I am now, but uh, I wanted to accurize it. You know, you want it, to, it's a hobby and hobbies you want to dump money into. So I wanted to sure. accurize it over the years. So I free floated the barrel by putting fiberglass stock on it with an aluminum bed yep. and uh, a, a better trigger. And I started swapping trigger springs and adjusting them. Uh, just to make it a really sweet rifle. But one of the things looking up on how to accurize the Remington 700 was lapping the lugs. Sure. And how this comes back to way scraping, Doug was talking about, you know, as, as a machine tool 
get some wear on it as, as after it's made a few batches of parts and it's been through a couple thousand tools um you know it, it, it a machine tool naturally it doesn't becomes less accurate than when it was brand new right um it, it's out, it becomes out of you know it starts loosening up on tolerances and becomes out of spec and you put a brand new tool in it and it's not making its parts to spec. So you got to look at the rest of the machine, what needs to be fixed. You know, you replace the spindle still out of spec, you know, then there, your next step is check the ways, inspect the ways you measure them. Sure. And Doug was talking about how you put like this die on the ways and you let the machine tool axes go over the ways and where there's still die is a low point in the way and where there's no die remaining that's the high point that's a good contact area and ideally as the axes move you want the the die to be completely removed from the way yep. so if you see that die remaining you know you've got to scrape it down to get it to true up the accuracy of the machine. And this reminded me of lapping the lugs because you use a lapping compound and a lapping die to see where the lugs on the bolt mesh up with the uh, the, 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 the reverse lugs, if you yeah, would, yeah. right outside the chamber of the barrel in yep. the rifle. So, and, and you want those lugs to mesh perfectly and, and and just be totally flat and that helps accurize the rifle and yeah. similarly to a machine tool the more contact you have the more precision and accuracy you can get out of the machine so yeah, that's right that's just the correlation was really awesome and this was something that i could relate to without knowing about it or having any experience with it yep. so learning about way scraping was awesome that's really cool because the last experience i had with uh scraping ways when we bought uh the used machine from england we bought a used machine uh based on pictures we didn't get a chance to fly over test it out do test cuts and uh, yeah that was one of the mistakes probably the last machines that we ever bought was that a fairly expensive machine against twin spindle for some reason that was our strategy <laughs> uh we brought over and they did a terrible job prepping it for travel. Uh, so they didn't properly uh, disconnect the electricals. They just chopped off the wire uh, going oh, into, no. the, into the uh, control unit and uh, the ways that they didn't uh, lock the bed properly. So everything was just banged up as it traveled. Uh, so we had to strip off the uh, the bed and then they re-cleaned up the ways. They actually built up the layers on the ways again because there's no significant low spots. But yeah. How the, do you do that? Uh, so there's uh, certain chemicals that they or certain... Uh, compounds that they can put actually adheres to the uh, agent on the back of the uh, the table. Like machine tool Bondo or something? Uh, kind of. It's a bunch of different uh, chemicals. I think turkite might be still used or different other agents like that. Where, oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, you know, I'll you've got the metal one. on metal, so they put this other compound in the middle that's adhered to the, the table. So they put that on and they scrape everything back in, but it's it was like a two-week process of them just scraping the entire bed. One, it was like a 10-foot-long bed, so they had to re-scrape the entire thing. And plus, we had to buy a new uh, ball screw, so that had to come in. But yeah, that was a, a terrible experience. Uh, but one thing I did found is before you get to that point, as uh, we started doing ball bar tests. So that's one thing I forgot to bring up when we were preparing for the, uh, uh, the podcast earlier is that you, know, you don't necessarily have to wait until you start getting bad parts or mm -hmm. experimenting around. Uh, there's a couple of tools that you can put into the machine where basically you put a ball on the table itself and then you put a, a, a ball, a bar uh, that's touching magnetically uh, attached the ball on the table uh, and it uh, basically goes in a circle, uh, extrapolates a circle. 
uh, Renishara and some other metrology companies makes this equipment. And the feedback that it'll tell you is it'll measure the distance that it travels along that circle. Oh, wow. And, and the feedback that the software provides you, it tells you, is it a spindle issue? Is it a bearing issue? Is it a, it tells you in the general direction where you want to start investigating. Uh, it gives you accuracy information. It gives you positional tolerancing, that type of stuff. So uh, that's one thing related to, you know, scraping the machine is that uh, I think the software can tell you that you probably have a bad spot in your table. One, what we've done in the past is not scrape the entire entire table. We actually just move the tooling over on the bed and just use a different spot on the bed in the past. So uh, that's a, a shortcut that we've done in the past. So yeah. that was fun. Yeah, a lot that's of just, good memories. That's awesome. Like, and, 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 and you know, you've got them, uh, as we found out early, Steve Lesnowich you know, has got a few of them. Yep. I'm sure there's a lot of people at AMD who have an, a plethora of manufacturing knowledge and i'm glad i got to think of you know because doug is itching for uh, questions on a weekly basis yeah. for us to ask him and yeah. he's the face of amt and he's a good talker and that, so uh and you, I, I gotta think of more awesome questions like this to ask him because yeah. I, I know he's got more great technology knowledge in him from more traditional stuff too yeah he's got a lot of experience in the industry and he's got the uh daily minute on linkedin through amt's um uh, oh yeah posting there that uh, should definitely check out so the question that you ask her after is linkedin uh, daily minute right so, awesome steve this was a great episode uh where can people find more information about us they can find more information about us on amtnews.org yep. that's where the podcast is posted as well as many other podcast listening services um but at amtnews.org slash subscribe um, if you scroll to the bottom, there's two subscription boxes, one for the AMT News weekly uh, weekly uh, report, yep. weekly digest, that's it. And that's not us. That's why I didn't know about it. You scroll to the bottom, the second one, that's the AMT weekly tech report. I write that. <laughs> Subscribe to that. If you want your daily weekly intake of technology, that's the place to be. Go to the tech report. Yeah. Everything on AMT News is great. You know, you should read all of it. <laughs> Well, great plug, Steve. Thanks. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.